uh, we are talking about the discipline of witness, the discipline of sharing our faith. And so as we grow in Christ, there should be this burden. And this is a little bit of a heart check for you and for myself. Uh, there should be a burden to not just absorb the gospel, but to pour back out and to share it with other people and then walk with them in a disciple-making process. And so that's what we're gonna cover today. We're gonna cover three things if you wanna write them down. Number one, how do you walk through this process? You tell the truth to people that need to hear the truth. That's the controversial part. Uh, it's the part that uh, we know we have to do, but so many of us are scared to do it. And number two, we practice what we preach. And then number three, we invest in those relationships. And so if I was, I was thinking this week, what is the threefold process for sharing the faith? It really is. It starts on this pillar of whether or not what we believe is even true. And this isn't a new concept. This has been controversial since Jesus was on earth. And then so what we're going to do today is we're going to try to answer this question, what is truth? And we're going to start from someone in the Bible who was never a Christian who asks it to Jesus right before he dies. In fact, he's the one who sent him to his death, and he is asking and begging the question for himself. We're gonna dig into what that means. But the question that we start with is this. When we are witnessing, when we are sharing Christ, the question that we have all asked ourselves and the question that the world is asking us specifically is this. Is there truth? And I don't know if you guys have been following what's been going on in the world around you, but it's not just Christians that are asking that question. There's some really popular stuff floating around social media circles right now asking all sorts of questions about society and gender. I mean, there's this overarching question, like what, what this huge documentary right now called What is a, a Woman? Has anyone seen that? No one? All right, I thought it was pretty big. Maybe no one, no one cares. But people are asking questions like, what is truth? What is sexuality? What, what, what is this? What is that? I mean, people want to know in a world with more information that's ever, never existed, there are, seems to be less concrete answers than ever before. And so what do we hang our hat on? Some truths are undeniable. Like if you throw gas on a flame, it's going to ignite. And you don't want to test that theory. I can just promise you it's true. If you stab yourself, you're going to bleed. But Jesus made spiritual claims in a Roman culture that was very unpopular, it ultimately had him murdered. And he makes this statement. He says what? He says, I am the truth. So the first thing first, everyone look at me. Wake up, okay? We're gonna get in it today, okay? There's gonna be some things that are said and you're going, I thought they believed that, but he didn't really, I mean, we're gonna say some things today this might be a divisive issue for you. This might be your last Sunday. I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's one of those Sundays. But that you might walk in here going, I don't believe any of that. That guy's crazy, all right? I would just challenge you, if you think the Bible is something that should be followed, everything I'm gonna tell you is in the Bible. So what is truth in a Western culture that says truth is relative, that truth, your truth is not my truth, and as long as your path doesn't intersect and then invite, invade my truth, we can probably be okay, but as soon as you start talking in absolutes, we're gonna have a problem. Western culture has a massive problem with the gospel right now in the world that we're living in. Is there, here's the question, is there a truth that sits on all men and women regardless of age, race, or socioeconomic status? Are there things that we can say, I might not like to hear that, but that stands over me as something that guides my thinking and my actions for my life and for my family's life. In a world that's starving for truth, Western culture says, 
Absolutely, it is not the case. We cannot go there. As long as your truth is not binding to my truth, we can exist. But as soon as you start telling me how it is, according to Scripture, we're going to have a massive problem. There are these two philosophical worldviews that are combating with each other in our culture that have to be addressed. The world has a different way of seeing things. I don't know if you noticed that. If you're a Christian, you're like, man, it seems like I'm a minority now. Congratulations, you are. You are. The world has a philosophical worldview that there are problems. All of us can see that there are problems. But the way that those problems get better or the way that those problems go away is through self-empowerment. So if I can become enlightened, if I can become a better person, if I can be kind and loving, and then the world around me can adopt the same worldview that a better self is the solution through self-improvement and through love, right? That's the big word, and Christians like that word too. It just means something different. As soon as we can all be enlightened to let everyone do what everyone wants to do, then the world is going to be in the utopia that it was designed for, and we're all going to live in this bliss. And then the problem with that, look at me when I tell you this, the problem with that is just reality. And what I've told you before in church is if that was going to work, that would have already worked. We've been holding to this view since I was a kid. I grew up in the self-esteem generation of the 90s, and my school counselor and those around me told me I could do anything I want to do, and I could be anything I want to be if I believe in who? You got to wake up, right? I, I get offended, and I'm insecure. If I believe in, thank you, if I believe in me, the power of me, and then we look at the empirical evidence around us to test the theory of that philosophical worldview, and we have to concede it's fallen short. Things have not getting better, gotten better because that's not the way that God designed them. So then Christians come along, and then our worldview puts everything on its head. It says the exact opposite. In fact, if you're in a church that adapts that worldview, even though it sounds pretty and packaged and polite, trust me, there's something wrong with the church because the Christian worldview is the exact opposite. The problem is not the external. The problem is not everything else around me. That's a problem, but it's not the problem. Hear me when I say this. The problem is you. The problem is your heart. The problem is sin, and Christ had to come to deal with this sin issue in your life and my life, and we will never be who we're supposed to be unless we have Christ that has made us from dead in our sins to alive in him. And so maybe you've heard a gospel message and you're like, I never really heard it like that. I thought I just need to try harder and be a better Christian. Congratulations, you grew up in religion that's gonna send you to hell. Because you can never earn your way to a holy God. He has to send his son down to you and you've been living by a bunch of rules instead of by grace. So there are these two combative worldviews. One is humanism, pull yourself up, you can do it, you can be whatever you want to be. Then there's the gospel that says you can't do anything outside of Christ, and he stands, he sits on a throne over the earth, knowing every hair on your head, your first heartbeat and your last heartbeat, and when you want to share the gospel with someone, you exalt Christ because he's the one who transforms and not you, thank God, because you make a miserable savior just like I do. So as we dig into this text, just know that Jesus is gonna make this statement about being truth that we have to analyze and we have to replicate when we share our faith with those around us or there's no transforming power. This is what he says to Pilate who's not a follower of him. In fact, Pilate's about to murder him. 
Verse 33, chapter 18 says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Jesus starts kind of giving it back to him. He says, Do you say this on your own accord or did others say it about me? And Pilate gets sarcastic with Christ. He's probably had a long day. He's stressed to the max. He's trying to delegate and lead through responsibilities that are very complicated because you have Jewish people and Romans and no one's getting along and he's the middleman and if it doesn't work out, then he could be murdered for his lack of leadership. So he's tired, he's fed up, he's frustrated and Pilate answers him. He says, am I a Jew? Why are you asking me? I'm asking you a specific question. Are you the king of the Jews? And the Jewish people want Jesus murdered, and they know that if Jesus says he's the king of the Jews, that that could be a possible insurrection. And so they're setting Jesus up, and Pilate's trying to deal with all this, and he's trying to de- deflate the situation because he doesn't want to have to crucify an innocent man. He says, am I a Jew? He says, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? I think it's a legitimate question. What have you done? Why does everyone hate you? Jesus answered, my kingdom, this is where it gets deep. This is where it gets heavy. My kingdom is not of this world. He starts talking truth. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. In verse 37, look at this. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Jesus makes statements that have to be addressed. There are things that Jesus says that if they are true, change everything for you. You cannot walk out of this space in this sanctuary this morning believing what Jesus says and then that having a change in your heart, in your mind, in your life. One of the claims that Jesus just made is this, for this reason I was born, for this reason I came into the world. Hear what he's saying. He's saying that I am so much different than you. You you have a specific time that you were born, and he says this about himself. I am. I've I've always existed. You, You have a certain time that you breathed your last breath, but I stand outside of time. We see clearly from his statement, especially when you look at it in the Greek, the clear indication that Jesus proclaims is that he is outside of time, he's outside of history, and that he has the ability to look down at this world and decide to enter it. None of us had that decision. He's in the Godhead, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Trinity, three in one since the beginning of time, and he's going, there has to be something done because man has fallen short of the glory of God and his sin is gonna be punished and her sin is gonna be punished. And so this is the point that I'm gonna enter human history to deal with this sin issue for the glory of God. My kingdom is coming down to earth. For this purpose, verse 37, I was born and for this purpose I have come. And here's why I bring this up, to do something to bear witness to the truth. Now check that out, underline it in your mind if you're not gonna write it down. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say to bear witness to a truth. It doesn't say to bear witness to a subset of moral beliefs that can make you a better person because you go to church. Jesus says, I came to bear witness to the truth. Everyone of the truth, listens to my voice. And so he's saying this. He's saying, I am the truth. 
And if Jesus wouldn't have said this, I promise you, they would have had no motivations to murder him. Think about the magnitude of what he's saying. He picks this this point in history. The sovereign hand of God is saying, this is the time, 2,000 years ago, all of the Bible is looking at this point towards the coming Messiah. Everything after his death is looking back. That's our exact time periods in history, B.C. and A.D. Everything points to Jesus Christ. He is not a big deal. He is the centerpiece of human history. Billions of people recognizing him 2,000 years later as the Messiah, even if they don't pick up their cross and follow him. There are a lot of people. It's the number one religion in the world. He says, I have come to bear witness to the truth. And this is what had him murdered. He came into the middle of nowhere. He was born. And he grew up in this place called Nazareth. You know what the people said about Nazareth? They said this. They said, does anything good come from Nazareth? No offense, but it's like, does anything good come out of Frederick? I mean, it's just like the middle. It's like the middle of, you, you drive, you're like, did I pass it, right? Anyone from Frederick? I'm so sorry. Okay, I'm so sorry. You can pick anywhere. It says such South Dakota roots. He is coming to the middle of nowhere for the biggest world transformation in the history of humankind. If you're from the middle of nowhere, you, you take heart in that. You're like, Jesus Christ, here's my story. And he interjects into human history. I've come to bear witness to this absolute truth. I've come to die for people that you don't even know exist yet. My kingdom is not of the world. Paul speaks about this in Colossians, how huge Jesus is. In Colossians 1.16, he gives this broader understanding of this truth that we're talking about. He talks about Jesus outside of this world. He says, for by him, 1.16, Colossians, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, check this out. All things were created through him and all things were created for him. Everything's pointing to Christ. It's his glory. It's his purpose. It's his plans. It's his truth. I've come to bear witness to this truth. It's all pointing to our Savior. And so when we preach Jesus from the Old Testament, we show how the Old Testament points to Christ. When we preach Jesus in the New Testament, we show you how it all connects to Christ, no matter what we're talking about. It's all about his plan. It's all about his salvation. It's all about his purpose and his will. And then Pilate doesn't know what to do. Pilate's heard so much philosophy, empty philosophy in his life. Pilate is an interesting historical figure. History tells us, we don't know exactly if this is true, that he never makes a decision to believe on Christ, but there's something that happened in this moment, in this night before Jesus went to the cross that really stuck with Pilate. And history tells us, church history, that about three years later, Pilate killed himself. But verse 38 says this, Pilate said to him, and just imagine the frustrated tone of Pilate's voice. Jesus is laying out, I'm the truth. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? I can't prove it, but I think that's the inflection of the text. Man, it's been a long day. I am so sick of these people over here just you know, trying to set things up. They're living under oppression. The Roman government with all of their gods and all of their power, and I'm sitting under their thumb, and if I don't handle this situation appropriately, my head could be on the chopping block, and I'm hearing about this truth over here and that truth over here, and now you're telling me you are the truth, and I just gotta say, what is truth? I don't know anymore. 
I mean, how many of you, like, that, that's how you're feeling too. That's how you're feeling because we live in the exact same world. It's just 2,000 years fast forward with a new subset of problems. He says, after this, he said, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. He's frustrated. Here's Pilate's story. He probably knows there's something different about Christ. He doesn't exactly know what it is. He's trying to create a scenario where Jesus is released and not murdered. He doesn't have, he does not have the courage to stand up to the pressure, the political pressure of the day. But he's been around. He, he, he didn't just live in Jerusalem his whole life. This is Pilate's story. He's been around the empire. He was brought in to rule and to reign. He's been around the block, metaphorically, so to say. He has seen various world religions, religious sects, out there all claiming they know what to be true. He has been in Rome where they worshiped hundreds of gods and believed that a god slept with another god's wife. When she got pregnant, the angry god ate the baby and the baby came out of his stomach. These were the crazy things that they believed. Rome was known for believing and operating in vicious things. Child sacrifice in these temples outside of Rome, not uncommon. He's watching all of this craziness around him. Rome is constantly giving sacrifices to hundreds of God. And believe me, Pilate has seen bloodshed over religion. And so he says to Jesus the night before his crucifixion, what is truth? What is it? And Jesus says, look no further. I'm going to tell you what truth is. Truth is me. And here's what's so cool. Check this out. I can prove it because I'm going to die. You think you're killing me? I have predestined this with God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. You don't do anything, and you have no power over me. I'm taking care of this myself. You're just a middleman in the process. Jesus says, I'm going to show you what truth is, and here's where it's such good news. He's going to say, I'm going to prove it. And how does he prove it? Three days later, he's not dead. He gets out of the tomb. He, he gets out from under the ground, and he goes and he raises from death. And so when we share our faith, it starts with that. It starts with that question, what is truth? What is truth? Here, here, here's what we know according to Jesus, that we're all sinners. That although a lot of us, because of sin, have been victimized, a lot of us, because of sin, have been broken, that the sin problem isn't outside of us, the sin problem is inside of us. And no one, if we were to be honest, has let us down more than ourselves. That if we're broken, we can't fix broken, so we have to have Jesus die in our place for our sin. So we tell the truth. The truth is we're sinners. The truth is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. The good news of the truth is that Jesus Christ defeated death. The truth is that Jesus is not God-like. Jesus is not just godly. Jesus Christ is God himself. He says in John 30, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The truth is that Jesus is not a way, he's the way. And he says so in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the story just gets better and better. The good news is also this. The truth is also this. That Jesus Christ takes you dead in your sin and he doesn't leave you there. He gives you new life in him. That's the story of our church. That's the narrative of the people who have come to New Life over the years, that God is doing a work 
And it all hinges. It's not, it's not just fairy dust. It's not just we have to kind of believe this because the Bible says so and there's no evidence for it. There's all sorts of evidence that we have as Christians that we don't even talk about or we don't operate in. There is strong empirical evidence that this whole thing is true because Christ didn't stay dead. We, we talked about this before on an Easter. Why, why do we believe that Christ rose from the dead? There's evidence. Right? There's intellectual proof. Hundreds of years before Christ ever said he was going to do this. He says it in the Old Testament through Isaiah. God is saying, I'm going to send the Messiah. He's going to die, but then he's going to rise. And then Jesus comes to earth before he ever goes to the cross. He says, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise. The Corinthian church is having a problem with the resurrection. Paul says this. He says, there are 500 people that saw the resurrection of Christ. If you don't believe me as an apostle, go ask them and see for yourself and interview them and ask them what they saw and how they encountered Christ, not in his life and in his death, but in his resurrection. This truth has historical proof. The disciples, 12 of them, 11 of them are murdered. They're burned. Right? Jesus' own brother is dropped off the temple and then stoned to death. Hung upside down, beheaded, gruesome. If this was all fake, if they didn't actually see a risen Christ, is there any way that they would go when it came time to chop their head off? You know, I know this whole thing's a hoax. I know it's not true, but I'm so deep in it now, I might as well be burned alive. There's no way. Christ makes these claims, and then he rises from death, and because he rises from death, he does something that no one else has ever done. He says that he's the Messiah, and he proves it. And so because of that, because of that, because he is the truth, we have the privilege of sharing the truth. We have the privilege of sharing a life change, starting with ourselves, Christianity didn't just take off. I don't, I don't know if you know this. Christianity exploded. He's from Nazareth, middle of nowhere. That's why I brought that up. I wanted to get to this point. You want some proof that Christ is the Messiah, that Christ rose from the dead? This thing absolutely exploded in major cities, the equivalent of L.A., right? the equivalent of New York City, the equivalent of London. It exploded in these areas, in intellectual circles, in Rome, in Philippi. All these people who are brilliant minds are seeing a resurrected, are hearing about a resurrected Savior, and supernaturally, they are giving their life to Christ to the point where they're dying for the cause. They're being slaughtered in Colosseums because the gospel is true. And so we preach this truth that Christ lived a perfect life, that we're a sinner, that we had to go to a cross in our place, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that he's not a truth, he's the truth, that he's not a way, he's the way, and we have this boldness because it's true. And when we share our faith, if it starts and stops there, how many of you know that it doesn't always go well? If it's just about knowledge that you can share with someone else and it's not leveraged on a relationship, all of a sudden it can fall really flat in a hurry. I mean, the second thing I wrote down that I told you already, the second thing that we have to do, we don't just preach the truth, we practice what we preach. Do you know what no one likes in the history of mankind, regardless of any culture you'll ever be a part of? No one has ever gone to any culture and found this truth about human behavior. And when you get into different cultures, if you study cultures, there, there are different truths for different cultures, like things that are popular in one is unpopular in another. Here is a moral absolute. Nobody likes a hypocrite. 
There's never been a, a hero in the history of mankind that's been a big hypocrite, that's been fake. Everyone wants authenticity. And so when we say we believe these things, if we live, and, and this is where it gets touchy because we have a wide base at New Life. There's a circle and a circle and a circle of people that we're influencing. And by the time you get to the last few circles, people come once in a while and do whatever they want. And as a pastor, I'm aware of it and I don't like it, but I think at least we're sharing the gospel with them. But that's what drives an unbelieving world crazy. You say you believe this about Christ, and yet I watch you in your life, and you do whatever you want, and you're the God of your own life, and yet you call yourself a Christian. When we share Christ, we do so humbly, we do so with conviction, and we do so with authenticity because we all have a circle of influence to share this good news that we just talked about with. And when we don't do that, it falls flat on its face. The book that we're going through, every pastor loves data that applies to their life being better or worse through the church thriving or failing, okay? That, that's kind of universal with pastors. And so this book talks about the data in terms of why people are even coming to church and why people are receptive to the gospel. And there was an institute called the American Institute of Church Growth. They surveyed 8,000 people. That's a large sample size. And they talked about sharing your faith and why people are coming to a church and what came out of that study is that God uses average people who are keeping it real and practicing what they preach and leveraging relationships. 2% of people are coming to any given church based on a special need that they have. Another 2%, give or take, are walk-ins. They just kind of happenstance, accidentally tripped on the church. And I think that's like, okay, I get that, right? But here's where it gets confusing. 6% were influenced by a particular preacher. You talk about humbling, on my best day, I've got about a 6% influence rate, and I'm the one who's jabbing up here week after week after week. The best I can give you, the most motivational time that I can have with you, 6% of people are actually finding and digging into the local church because of it. 3% were influenced by programs. One half of 1% came because of a crusade or a TV program. And 75 to 90% of all people that dig roots in a local church do so because they have relationships that are being leveraged through ordinary people sharing an extraordinary message. And so we tell the truth, we operate in the truth, and then the last thing is we have to, we have to, we have to build relationships. It's critical. What is the secret of new life? It is rising and falling based on leveraged relationships. That we have people that we're influencing for the kingdom of God. A sovereign God who orders everything a sovereign God who orders everything does so and does not allow for social accidents. I was telling the early service, you think you found this church, you think you found Christ, look at me when I tell you this, this is theological, Christ found you, okay? I'm not saying that, I mean, I don't, I don't pretend to know exactly how sovereignty works, I think that's a complicated topic, but I'm telling you this, I thought I found Christ my freshman year of college, but when I look back, and when you've been saved for a while, you can kind of do the history. You see how God's wooing you. When I look back, man, Christ found me. I was a total, 
I was a goofball. I know, I know that's shocking to you to hear me say that. You're like, how could that guy be so goofy? I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. I thought that I was some great basketball player, and then I wasn't getting recruited because, you know, there's so much bias built in, and no one saw how great I was. It couldn't have been because I didn't know how to play defense, and I never passed the ball. I mean, why am I not getting these big offers? And so I thought to myself, I'm going to go to a Christian college where they have to accept you. And so I went to a mid-level Christian college to play some mediocre basketball, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. My freshman year of college, I get in a dorm room around a bunch of guys my age that are loving and serving Jesus, and God starts just ripping my heart apart with the gospel. I didn't find that school. God placed me in that school. And God is using his people to tell the truth, to operate in the truth, and to leverage relationships for the kingdom of God, and there is a value in that. There's a value in that, and so we identify Identify these complex networks, whether it be biological, geographical, vocational, recreational. We all have this influence. And the last thing, I want to close with a story this morning. The last thing is we invest in them. We invest in them. That there are people around us, inside these walls, outside of these walls, that desperately need Christ. That the time is ticking away, second after second, minute after minute, and we never know when it's going to end But I promise you this, every hair on your head is numbered and every minute of your life is accounted for by a sovereign God. And so it is critical that we invest in people. I want to share a story with you. There's this mandate to share our faith and to more than that, to make disciples. You guys, uh, was anyone at the baptism service two weeks ago? No, are you guys, did you guys take some Benadryl before church? <laughs> Who's at the baptism service? All right, so 30 people got baptized. Peru, Osmar's in church. Where's Osmar? I can't see you. Osmar and Nicole. Everyone say hi. He's leaving today. Nicole's leaving today too. They're not, they're not like sitting apart. Sorry, their kids are leaving too, right? They're all going. Uh, we're going to go to eat and then the water park, but uh, they have to go. Peru baptizes like, what, another 16 people, something like that, right? So 46 people two weeks ago were baptized at New Life. That, that's, I'm trying to get a response from that. Don't clap now. That'd be awkward. But that's a big deal, right? I mean, that's a big deal. And so what's cool about that is we've been plugging away with this. Osmar and I met in 2010. We had this vision for making disciples, and then it took off in Peru, and now we have three New Lives there if you're new, and God's doing amazing things. And people are giving their life to Christ, Osmar was just at a Hutterite colony. Someone gave their life to Christ. I mean, this is what we do at New Life. We share the gospel, okay? And so people are giving their life to Christ. 46 people got baptized, confessed Christ as their Savior two weeks ago. And, and I was just thinking about that and knowing I have, a, I have something coming up this week that really connects with that. And you just never know, right? You never know who God's put in your life and what, what their story is going to be. But there's this guy named Pete that got baptized two weeks ago. I want to show you a picture of Pete. Do you guys remember that baptism? He, he was the guy that was one of the hardest people to baptize. I mean, he, there were three strong. Chuck was in Peru baptizing people. And so Pete wanted to get baptized. He got baptized with his daughter, Chris, and I'm close to her, and I'm really close to her husband, Eric. I've known him for a long time. But Pete made a decision to get baptized because he gave his life to Christ at a certain point in Luna life. But let me tell you Pete's story. Here's Pete's story, and uh, it's in a nutshell. I could get the details wrong, but this is the nuts and bolts of his story. Pete is living life. He's, uh, you know, he's kind of searching. He's struggling. 
Eric, who I've known for almost 20 years now, Eric and I went to grad school together with counseling. Eric and I worked at uh, uh, New Beginnings together with kids that, that struggle. And Eric and I played City League basketball together. I've known Eric forever. And at a certain point, Eric found new life based on most likely a leveraged relationship with me where he goes, hey, I know that guy. He's actually a pastor, right? So he started to come to new life. Chris started to come to new life. They've had their struggles, but they have both made decisions to follow Christ, and it's been radical. Eric's growth has been radical for Christ. And so Pete sees what's happening with his daughter. Pete sees what's happening with his son-in-law. Pete starts showing up to new life with all sorts of questions and all sorts of things that he's going through. But he sees a difference and he works on a leveraged relationship in his life. And so he comes off and on on Sunday, but Pete starts locking into the men's Bible study or one of the men's Bible studies on Thursday mornings. And Kelly Brennan, who's just a beast with Bible studies, starts leveraging that now relationship with Pete. And week after week after week after week, Kelly does something that sometimes drives me crazy. He asks this question that's very intimidating. Kelly asks Pete this question. Pete, how's your soul? Has, has he ever asked you that question? You ever got uncomfortable with that? It's like, ah, I'm a pastor. You can't ask me that. Right? He says, Pete, how is your soul? And Pete would say to him, I'm going to paraphrase Kelly. Tell me if I'm wrong. He'd say something like, you know, I still have questions. I don't know. I'm struggling, but he'd show up, and he'd show up, and he'd show up, and then a few weeks ago, Kelly asked him that question, and Pete says to him, man, my soul is good. I'm right with the Lord, right? I'm not perfect, but, but I get it. Jesus is my Savior. My soul is good, and he makes this decision to get baptized. We have him coming out of the water. Then Wednesday, I get a call at 4 p.m. I go to Pete's house immediately, and Pete's with Jesus. Ten days after his baptism, Eric sends me this picture when I leave the house. Look at this picture. He's still got sand in his shoes from getting baptized. Still damp. My, po my point is this. We were grieving. We were in shock, right? Chris is in shock. His, his wife's in shock. Eric's in shock. The girls are in shock. Everyone can't believe what just happened, that all of a sudden we go, we go see him. He's gone, and, and I'm looking at Pete, but I'm, go, I'm going to myself, man, this is where it gets so real about sharing our faith, and our days are numbered, and truth not being relative. Do you think truth, Jesus Christ, when he meets Pete face to face, is going to go, I'm so glad, Pete, you picked a truth and not the truth? No. Pete's seeing Christ face to face with all of his questions, sand still in his shoes, and he's seeing Christ on the throne, and he's going, man, this stuff was all true. I got 68 years here in this life, and now I have an eternity with the Father, and seeing Christ exalted on the throne, right hand of God the Father, and for the rest of my life, which is forever, I'm going to sing praises to the Savior who saved me that I declared as Savior in this water 10 days ago. That's the gospel. I had no intention of getting this worked up. Someone just gave me this morning. I haven't even given it to the family. This is his baptism certificate. This stuff is real. This decision is real. We share the truth. We live in the truth. And we leverage those relationships for Pete. Because here's what we know in Scripture. Look at me when I tell you this. I'm going to close in prayer. 
when God makes a disciple out of you through his son, Jesus Christ, every, every disciple is a disciple maker. But the vast majority of people that are going to come to Christ and grow in Christ is not because of the best message they've ever heard. They're going to come to Christ and grow in Christ because they have been influenced by the people around them, loving them and serving them like Kelly. That's what we know. And so as we start to close out these disciplines of a godly life, most of them have been, hey, live like this, live like that, follow this. If you don't, there's going to be a consequence. Now we're getting to ministry side. It's not just a subset of rules. It's, hey, don't do these things because they're going to destroy your life. But there's more than the don'ts. There's the do's. Share your faith because you will be liberated by actually living out the calling that Christ has for you as you're a witness to here, to Peru, to the nations, as you're on mission for Christ now, all of a sudden, you start melting away those angst and those worries and those things that are bogging you down because now you're actually doing what God has called you to do, and you have the opportunity to share stories with a guy like Pete who has sand in his shoes and is now sitting at the uh, feet of Jesus Christ because people were obedient to the call of making disciples. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ is absolutely who he says he is, and at New Life... We are leveraging relationships to make him known. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. We thank you that you are the centerpiece of human history. We thank you that at a certain point in a lot of our lives, you, you have opened our eyes to who you are, and we have said yes to you. And we have decided to follow you. But I pray that God, for myself included, you would give us a new and fresh burden for making that truth known to people around us, to our friends, our families, our kids, our wife, our husbands, our coworkers. That we would live out the gospel one relationship at a time. If there's anyone in this space that doesn't know you, they thought they understood what it was to be a Christian, and then they just got just knocked down by the truth. They just, they just got hit and their heart is hurting. God, I, pr I pray that you would open their heart, not just to what you did on that cross, but the fact that you died and then you rose and that they can have new life in you and it's exciting and it's fresh and it puts them on mission, that they are loved, that, that they are accounted for, that their first breath is known, that their last breath is known and that all of life is pointing to you. God, I pray that there's anyone in this space who has never declared you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior of their life and repented of their sins, that right now in this moment they would say, Jesus, you're in control. I repent. I follow you. You're my Savior. Have your way with us, Jesus. We pray all of these things in your name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.